It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh, and today it is my absolute honor to be talking to Congresswoman Barbara Lee, California. There is a documentary about the remarkable life of this woman. It is called Truth to Power, and it premieres on Stars February 1st. I was lucky enough to see a screener, Congresswoman, and I think my, my first question is like, how do we get more of this? I want more deep dives into the people who are just fighting year after year for people who need it. So how did this project come about? Well, thank you very much for having me, Jess. And I'd, I'd say I talked to uh, the person who was the filmmaker, Abby Ginsburg, because she's a phenomenal fi filmmaker and she did it. It wasn't me. I was a reluctant subject. It took her twice as long to do the film. I don't know. I, I don't even think I ever said yes to it, but <laughs> it just sort of happened around you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, as somebody, I mean, I, I've worked on the Hill. I've been in, in politics specifically. I worked at Emily's List for five years. Like I kind of thought I had a handle on, on you and, and your life. And it turns out there is so much that I had no idea about. And the story, from, <laughs> the story from childhood to where you are now as the highest ranking black woman in Congress is, is just phenomenal. So I, I actually want to talk about your first election as, as cheerleader in high school. Um, the, the select committee wasn't going to select a girl who was black. And so you grew the electorate. Like you didn't waste your time trying to change the minds of people who might be racist. You just got more people to vote. So my question is, how did you get that at 15? And, and we are still trying to explain it to so many grown people in our own party today. <laughs> well, listen, at 15, remember now, and the film I think lays this out, I uh, came from, El I was born and raised in El Paso, Texas. And I could not go to public schools because I was black. So I ended up going to Catholic schools. <laughs> The Sisters of Loretta taught me. It was a phenomenal school, uh, great education. And so was the black school, Douglas, which my mother and aunts attended. But my mother and grandfather and parents decided no more segregation for them regardless. And so we ended up in Catholic school. My mother was the uh, one of the first 12 students to integrate the University of Texas at El Paso. We worked with the NAACP because that was their effort to in, uh, integrate uh, public facilities and, and schools in Texas. So I come from the Texas, the Southwest, where it was totally segregated, colors only water fountain. I couldn't go to the theater, it's in the film, Plaza Theater with my Latina friends and my white friends, which I had at school because I was black. And so, you know, I come to California thinking, oh, you know, things are gonna be cool. <laughs> It's solved here. There's no Jim Crow there, right? Things are still not cool in California if you're black. And so I wanted to be a cheerleader and I figured I could be a cheerleader. And I was working though, work study at the credit union where my boss was the president of the NAACP. And I just have to tell him, I really want to be a cheerleader, but you know, they have the selection committee and they've never selected anybody who looks like me. Uh, and so we talked and he went to uh, the other person who I think was the chairman of the board 
of the NAACP, and I have to call their names, Carmel Craven and John Mance in Los Angeles. God bless their souls, they both had passed, but they helped me organize. And I didn't think it was much of anything. I mean, it was no big deal because I knew being black, we've got to do something to break these barriers. So they helped me organize uh, to go to the school to say, look, you guys have got to change these rules because they're discriminatory and uh, we're going to take it all the way if you don't. And so the administration backed down. They said, yeah, I guess you're right. Because by then there had been some, I won't say a riot, but some people came to school with change, didn't want to change. And then the administration saw how serious this was. So they finally said, okay, we'll have elections, which was good. So we got rid of the selection process. Remember, yeah, 15 years old, but I knew what I wanted. So I said, look, I just want to be able to compete. I want, to be, I want this to be a fair process. So I tried out in front of the student body and guess what? I won. I was the first black cheerleader elected to San, at San Fernando High, but that year an Asian Pacific American won, Jeannie Tanaka. And so the rest is history, but just that one effort with the NAACP where now they've submitted this film as one of the best documentaries, the NAACP for the Image Awards, which is really full circle for me. Uh, you know, it's been the NAACP that's really helped me through all of this. And, and so that's why uh, I say, you know, young people, you know, where there's injustice, you got to agitate, you got to peacefully demonstrate, you've got to shake this system up. And that requires dealing with systemic change and, and rules change. Do you ever find yourself wanting to tell this story to your colleagues as they talk about sitting down in the diner to change the mind of a Trump voter for the Salivant's time when, when you know that the key is to expand the electorate, the key is that like our, our agenda wins when there's an even playing field of every voter. Do, do you find yourself telling the cheerleading story? Yeah, I don't, but you know, that's a good idea. I think I will because so many of my colleagues uh, who are in marginal districts naturally uh, have concerns about, <coughs> excuse me, um, being uh, vulnerable to a Trump Republican winning, but they have uh, minority constituents. And, and I'm saying, look, you guys have 5% black constituents. You have 7% API, Latina, Latino constituents. Why don't you go to them and register them and organize them and we'll beat them by expanding your voter pool. And that's not all districts, but a lot of districts where they're marginal, where the uh, registration is close and where the Trump people are active, you have large numbers of, of black and brown people who could really be the balance of power. And so, yeah, I think I'll tell them the cheerleading story, but that's the story I talk about is look, we've got to look at all these districts where we can organize uh, and expand the electric, but I've never talked about much cheerleading story. So thanks, Jess, for that. <laughs> Happy to. I was struck watching it. I was like, this is exactly the voting rights conversation we're having right now. She didn't decide to like change the select committee's mind or lobby the three of them. She just expanded the electorate. I'm sitting there like, this is exactly the fight that we're having at this moment. Okay. So the other piece of this that I was floored by was your reluctance to, to register to vote, like how difficult it was to pull you, I mean, you were all—you were already an, an outspoken activist, somebody who's working on behalf of the community, studying to be a social worker. It's not like you weren't engaged in improving the lives of the people around you, but it was a bit of a fight to get you to take your talents 
to politics specifically, even even to register to vote. So so talk a little bit about that transition for you, because I've grown up with you in Congress and the idea that it was we might not have gotten you there is tough. <laughs> well, let me tell you, this was a conscious decision I made not to register to vote. So like so many young people now, I felt and here I was on welfare, right, with two kids, a single mom raising them. And I didn't see politics as being a pro, well, being relevant to my life. <laughs> and I didn't believe in the two-party system, Democrats or Republicans, because they hadn't done much of anything, I didn't think. And so why register to vote? So it wasn't like I was apathetic. Right. I'm black student union president, community working with the Black Panther Party. I was active on everything and uh, raising my kids. And so it's like politics, no, forget it. It's not the vehicle for change. So I invited, I had a class in government. Now, Jess, I've only had one class in government, <laughs> believe you me. So I had one <laughs> class in undergrad at Mills College where we were required to do field work. Okay, so the field work was in a presidential primary campaign. So I looked at the candidates, McGovern, Muskie, Humphrey. I said, huh? I went to my professor, I'll never forget this, Dr. Fran Mullins. I said, Dr. Mullins, I'm gonna flunk this class. I am just not going to do this. Okay, you're not gonna make compromise me by making me pass a class to work in one of these guys' campaigns. So I was ready to flunk the class, never flunked a class in my life. Okay, at the same time, right, I'm flunking this class. I invite Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm to Mills College as president of Black Student Union as the first African-American woman elected to Congress. And mm -hmm. uh, she came. Little did I know she was running for president and she talked about immigrant rights. You know, she spoke fluent Spanish. She talked about reproductive rights. She was uh, uh, against the Vietnam War. She talked about poverty reduction. I mean, this woman is, was amazing. So I went up to her later and said, oh, Congresswoman Chisholm, you know, I love you, love what you stand for. I had no idea you were running for president, you know, because she talked about her presidential run. And I said, and I have this class and I'm flunking and because I'm required to work in the campaign, a campaign. And I said, no way. And she took me to task and asked me if I registered to vote. No, no, no. And told me all about her campaign. I said, well, maybe I'll reconsider working your campaign. And she said, well, you've got to register to vote. And she called me little girl then as she did now, <laughs> right before <laughs> she passed away. <laughs> and so, um, I thought about it and she really, really took me task that day. I so would I, imagine Shirley Chisholm's Chisholm. way real heavy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tough love. You do not argue with Shirley Chisholm about something that's right. So I went back, talked to my professor, said, okay, I'll reconsider this class. Flunking it. I'll try to work in a campaign. What do I do? Because Shirley had said, I don't have a national campaign, don't have a lot of money. I'm leaving it up to my grassroots people supporters. So I asked my professor, I told her I'd pass a try to pass a class. Who do I go to? She said, well, that's part of the work. You got to figure out who to go to. You got to figure out what to do. Bottom line is I ended up organizing the Shirley Chisholm presidential primary through my, in Northern California at my class, through my class at Mills College with Sandy Gaines, who was student body president and, and um, Sandra Swanson and Wilson Riles Jr., two students at community college. We organized that campaign, which I was leading, and we took, I think, eight or nine percent of the vote in Alameda County. I got an A in the class and went to Miami as a Shirley Chisholm delegate, and the rest is history. So it took that one person to take me on 
and to really not let me get away with saying no, 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 no. And I'm sure that you have been that one person to a lot of other folks who were considering how to best make change in the world. And now you are the highest ranking black woman of Congress. So what does seniority mean? Like, what does it mean to have that kind of power? Because I think at this point, we're, we're looking at the the radical diversity of the new classes coming into Congress and less to lesser extent the Senate, but we're watching all of these um, these new voices who are willing to say things that we haven't heard before. And and uh, I'll quote Ayanna Presley, like they under the, the people closest to the pain, they ought to be the people closest to the power. And we haven't seen that very often, but it's happening now. So how would you advise them? to use their power as they work their way through the ranks, as they start becoming committee chairmen, chairwomen. Um, what does seniority mean for you? Yeah, and let me tell you, it's really, uh, for me, it's remarkable that we, and they're in the film, uh, Congresswoman uh, Ayanna Presley and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Lisa Blunt Rochester and all the phenomenal, the squad. Uh, and they call me, you know what OG is, right? I sure do, yes. <laughs> I'm the original gangster. So a lot of their agenda has been my agenda forever. And so mm -hmm. here they are now, and here I'm in a position to make sure they get the committees they want, to make sure their bills get to the floor, to make sure that I can mentor them and help them develop the coalitions and the strategies to get to where they want. I mean, look, look at Congresswoman Presley. I mean, the Hyde Amendment she'd been working on in Massachusetts, I've been working on for a hundred years. And I co-chair the pro-choice caucus. So I made sure that she is the chair of the abortion access task force for the pro-choice caucus. And we made phenomenal strides with her there. And so, so much of what I've been working on all my life, here they are. And so it's like- <laughs> This must be an incredibly validating time for you in as much as it feels like everybody is catching up a little bit to where you always have been. So let's let's take let's take the the use of force war authorization in 2001 which was I think the first time that I was 20 then. That was the first time that I became aware that there was a congresswoman Barbara Lee and she was not messing around. So you were the only member of Congress to vote against the use of force war authorization that predated the Iraq war and like many, many others. Um, and everybody thought it could be the end of your political career, including some members of your own family, I learned in the documentary. But you were right. You were the only one who was right. The authorization had no end date, no target country. It didn't even specify which president could take the power and use it. No details at all. So here we are in 2022 and you are 100% vindicated. Your, your fight to repeal it has passed the house. Um, it took 19 years for that to even happen. What, what can we learn from this incredibly long lesson in perseverance? Well, first, don't make them, don't make these mistakes, <laughs> constitutional <laughs> mistakes, you know, even in the midst of a disaster and national security threats. As elected officials, we were elected not to go with the flow, but to provide some rational responses. And giving any president a blank check to go to war forever is not responsible. And yes, it took all this time, but now it's, and I don't feel like I've been vindicated, it's just that members of Congress have caught up with the public because the public was there a long time ago. So we've been able to repeal it. And, and actually right now the repeal authorization is on the floor of the Senate. So we're hoping that that can get, this is the Iraq repeal to the president because he said he would sign it. 
Uh, he issued a SAP, a Statement of Administrative Policy, when I had it on the floor last year. So hopefully we'll be able to get that to his desk and sign. But it, it just says that uh, this is a marathon we're in, you know, and this is a democracy and sometimes democracy is, is hard. Uh, but it's hard got, right now. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. And so for those who are giving up, I say, please don't give up. Just know that they're breakthroughs. We have to be persistent. Uh, we're on the right side of history. And if, if I'm an example of that, given all the death threats and all the hate mail and, and, you know, you just have to take risks sometimes for what is right. And uh, for me personally, just as a member of Congress, I want to be reelected, you know, every two years if my constituents want to elect me, I'll run hard in my campaigns and I do everything I can do to be reelected. But there, you can't always make calculated decisions based on reelection. I mean, there's life after Congress, you know, and you can't just let the fear of not being elected. That's one calculation. But remember, there are all kinds of decision-making uh, so decision-making uh, decisions that you make yeah. when you make such huge decisions. So you have to weigh everything and balance it out. I think it's important to keep the priorities and the principles center stage. And that is uh, that is clearly something that you have done throughout your entire career. I want to tell everybody to check out Truth to Power on Stars, February 1st. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you for literally everything. We appreciate the fight and the work that you do for us every day. Thanks a million, Jess. And I just have to take a moment to salute Abby Ginsburg, our filmmaker again, because if it hadn't been for her, it would not have been done. So thank you again. Thank you to you. Thank you to Abby. Please stay safe and okay. as safe as possible. You too. Nice being with you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.